I want our guiding thought this morning to just be aware of the world's flattery, the world's deception, to try and distract us and make us content with something far second best. Because it's really a choice for us. Are we going to make do with the flattery of the world, with, with flattering and making excuses? Or are we going to come to a, a realisation that we need a hiding place? We need to trust in Jesus. The one in whom our faith is placed and placed well. Flattery and faith. We encounter three rather unsavoury figures in our text today. Chapter 24. Perhaps you've read it already. I hope you might have had the chance to read it as you've prepared for today. Uh, If not, don't worry. Uh, We're going to read it together this morning in just a little while. But we will encounter three unsavoury figures, uh, two of whom we've encountered before, one of whom is new uh, to the text this morning. Firstly, Ananias, the high priest. Secondly, Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. And thirdly, Tertullus, the slimy legal representative of the Jews. I want us to think this morning of the calibre of our own movers and shakers. Uh, Our own purported religious leaders our political leaders and the bureaucrats, the people who make their will known and make their will happen. What about the calibre of our own movers and shakers? Ananias. Ananias was a controversial figure, uh, one who was eventually deposed by King Agrippa, Uh, King Agrippa we're going to encounter in chapter 25. Uh, You'll learn a lot about him in the coming weeks after Easter now. Uh, And not only was he deposed by King Agrippa, uh, this Ananias, the high priest, uh, but he was also eventually, a few years later, murdered by Jewish assassins. Uh, So this high priest was certainly not uh, a popular guy. Contrary to the image portrayed by Tertullus, the lawyer, this slimy lawyer here, Felix, the governor of Judea, was also not a kind and benevolent ruler. He wasn't the kind of guy that everyone looked up to and said, you know, thank God for Felix. You know, we can rest assured in his fine governance of the land. No, this this man was was not a kind and benevolent ruler, but he was a man governed by immorality and cruelty, a man who was brutal and violent, a man who had few limits on how he handled the inhabitants of the region he controlled, both the Jews and the Samaritans, and anyone else who stepped out of line. And then there's Tertullus, who no doubt having received his due fees in advance, is prepared to say anything to butter up the powers that be in order to achieve his master's bidding. 
In this case, the silencing of God's servant, Paul. What about our leaders today? What do we think of them? What do we think of their moral standing? What do we think of their performance and their righteousness? What about in other countries? What about in your homeland? Do we trust them? Do we trust the legal system to deliver justice? We've been reminded this week of the frailty of our own justice system here in the UK with the shocking murder of Sarah Everard and the appallingly low conviction rate for men who take it into their own hands, take it upon themselves to mistreat women in their lives. So what do we think about justice in this world? Is there any justice? Or is it for those who can pay? If there is no justice, where and in whom can it possibly be found? Is there any hope for us? Are we going to be flatterers like the rest of the world? Are we going to be people of conviction and faith in the one who alone can give us hope? The one who alone can bring us justice? Let's read together, shall we, from Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV version. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. They brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world, he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. 
And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. It is for the sake of the resurrection truth that Paul is on trial. It is a gospel question between those who believe and those who reject the gospel may the lord god give us understanding this morning if you're taking notes then note these three f's flattery framing or if you don't like framing fitting up means the same thing framing or fitting up flattery framing and faith let's explore God's word to us this morning. First of all, flattery. As I've said already, the world is all about flattery. It's all about minimizing the truth. It's all about giving us excuses to indulge the flesh. And so here we see the high priest's representative, the Jew's representative, Tertullus, this lawyer. And everything he says to Felix, the governor, is a lie. And Felix would have known it to be a lie or a catalogue of lies. Remember, Felix is a shrewd political operator. He's risen from the slave class to become a freed man. And he's now a man of high position in the Roman Empire. No doubt he believed that this was due to his own cunning, his determination and his ruthlessness. But friends, we know the truth. You and I, if you're a believer here this morning, we know the truth. That God is the one who causes the rise and fall of nations. He's the one who brings people into positions of significance. And like the leaders of our day, these people are put in their places to reveal the glory of God either through testimonies of his glorious grace in redemption and miraculous provision that is acknowledged, or through demonstrations of disgraceful wickedness that ultimately receive the righteous judgment of God and its due condemnation. God either appoints people for blessing, for for times of, of prosperity and and righteousness and goodness or he raises people up for judgment that they and the nations they govern might be judged for their apostasy and rejection of Christ 
We know that within a very short time of these events in chapter 24 of Acts, perhaps partly due to his handling of Paul here, the high priest Ananias was removed by King Agrippa from his position as high priest. And within perhaps 12 years of these events recorded here in Acts 24, Jerusalem itself would be destroyed by the Romans following an uprising by Jewish zealots, Jewish nationalists. So what was God doing here? What was God doing through these uh, civic leaders, through these people of power and influence? Well, it's not, the world's not neutral. It's not an inert situation where just, you know, the, the puny and pathetic people of God seek to wrestle against something far greater. God is at work through this whole situation. For each and every one of these individuals has significance and a role to play, either for blessing or for judgment. And friends, the same is true in our situation. The same is true in each and every one of our countries, in each and every one of our local councils, in each and every one of our workplaces. God is raising people up for good or for ill, that his name might be glorified, that his righteousness might be known, and his name exalted. So Jerusalem would be destroyed perhaps within 12 years of these events by the Romans following this uprising. Well, it seems that, that God is already bringing the chess pieces into place in order to punish the Jews for their rejection of Jesus and their willful self-indulgence. The elites of Paul's day, the elites in Jerusalem, they were furnishing their own nest. Ananias was a Sadducee, didn't believe in the resurrection, as we'll hear later. They lived for the here and now. They lived for the biggest, grandest palaces and mansions on the top of the hill in the city. They lived for the parties and the influence and the power that they could gain. They lived for their willful self-indulgence. The question is, what is God doing in our day with our leaders and spokespeople? Are they listening to truth? Or are they embracing flattery and lies? As we know, final authoritative truth for human flourishing is found coming from the mouth of God alone. Jesus who himself was and is the way, the truth, and the life, said of God's word, Your word is truth. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 17. Your word is truth. And Jesus prayed to his Father, asking him to sanctify us, all his people, in the truth. Friends, we can only be set apart and made holy by a knowledge of the truth. The truth about our fatal weakness, our sin. The truth, the awkward truth that we prefer lies and flattery 
over truth. And that Jesus alone, God alone, provides the cure for us. Friends, you see, this whole episode is about truth versus falsehood. And it's about the destruction that comes from accepting and encouraging lies and distortions. To live in the world of flattery, where we justify everything and we just say, oh, everything's okay, it's just whatever's true for you. However you want to redefine life and identity and marriage is all fine. There is no truth. Friends, we we reap the destruction that inevitably follows from the denial of truth. This should not be a surprise to us. Because it's been happening since the very beginning of time. The very father of lies, Satan himself, has been deceiving and flattering humankind since the very beginning in the garden. And what is it that happens when we believe those lies and when we listen to that flattery? Well, we may enjoy it for a brief time. The high priest Ananias may have enjoyed his moment of fame and fortune. He may have enjoyed it for a time. But the backlash and the recriminations and more importantly the justice of God would not wait long in the wings. Reality bites, friends. Friends, the second point is framing. When you choose flattery and you choose deception, lies beget lies and the, things get, the thing gathers pace and you, ha- you end up having to, to, to speak more and more lies in order to keep your position, in order to keep covering up. And that's what we see happening here as the high priest and, and, and this Jewish cadre seek to frame the man speaking truth, Paul. The atmosphere here at this hearing is not one uh, hopefully just or expectant of a just outcome. That's not the atmosphere, but it's an atmosphere uh, shrouded in corruption and grubby political intrigue. You need to understand that as you read the text here this morning, what the atmosphere was like there. Because just at a surface reading, we might not understand the dynamics of the relationships on show here. That's why I went to such great lengths to explain about the different characters who we see here in the, in the pages of Scripture. Grubby political intrigue and corruption abounding. Friends, clearly against that backdrop, the only grounds for hope is found in the sovereignty of God by which Paul could expect to find protection and deliverance in order that the full purposes of God would be worked out. In order that the resurrection hope that Paul knew in the Nazarene, Jesus, the wonder worker from Nazareth, that this unique and life-transforming hope would be proclaimed to the very highest audience in the known world. Caesar himself and Caesar's 
household. People right at the top of the the deck. Paul knew that that was his destiny. He knew that that was where he was headed. To go and preach the gospel in the very highest places. And as we've discovered, he was fearless. But before Paul goes to Rome, first, this travesty of misrepresentation must take place. Everything Tertullus says is a lie. Against the backdrop of a desperately broken province, ravaged by crime and banditry and vicious Roman oppression, Tertullus, the lawyer, flatters and massages the spectacularly crooked Felix. Why does he do so? Well, in order to do his paymaster's bidding. Tertullus is not concerned about truth. Merely in advancing the will of the elites in Jerusalem who are paying him. And they want to silence Paul, the truth speaker. They do not want their self-serving monopoly at the top of the pile in Jerusalem threatened. And so they make false accusations designed to frame Paul as a dangerous leader of a fanatical sect. Someone who Felix should prosecute without mercy. So Tullus equates Paul and the Gentile followers of Jesus with radical political zealots. Slanderous charges which we saw previously in chapter 21 of Acts and verse 38. You'll remember similar charges being flung about as Paul was being threatened with prosecution. Tertullus describes Paul and his co-workers as a plague on the land, spreading a wave of dissent and unrest that, that challenges conventional Judaism and most importantly here, Roman authority. You see the, the legal speak, the lawyer painting Paul as a dangerous reactionary, someone who Felix needs to squash. But Tertullus fails to understand Paul's resolve and more importantly his trust in the sovereign God of the universe. We need to listen because we need to have the same in order to navigate the various trials and situations in our lives, however old we are, whatever the nature of our opposition that we experience, whether it's in the the playground at school or in our classrooms or or whether it's in our workplaces or in our neighbourhoods, we need to understand and have this very same trust in the sovereignty of God, belief that he is at work in our lives with great purpose and desiring to fulfil his purposes in our lives. We must trust the sovereign God of the universe just like Paul Paul knows that his battle is a spiritual battle between those who accept the good news of God's plan of salvation for humanity in Christ and those who reject it. Between those who say they believe and those who really do. In emphasising the resurrection, Paul is niggling at the truth about Ananias, the high priest. 
You see, as a Sadducee, he did not believe in the resurrection. His hope was in his position and the material benefits and power that it brought him. God and religion was just a vehicle for him to live the cushy life, to live the favoured life. And Paul knew that the real divisions at the heart of Judaism over the resurrection would prove far more significant to his argument. And he gave a root, it gave also a root for the gospel since the certainty of the proof of Jesus' resurrection as Paul preached in chapter 17 of Acts. Chapter 17, verse 31, if you want to make a note. That this certainty of the proof of Jesus' resurrection was one of the key foundations of the Christian faith. It was then and it is now. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is key evidence for you to put your trust in him. And so Paul, rather than flattering Felix, he merely opens with a statement of fact. Recognises that Felix has been a judge for some time. So therefore he can stand before him because he knows that God has put him into that position. God has put Paul into this position now to bring the truth. And so he can confidently speak before him. And he goes on to dismantle Tertullus's arguments. How could Paul possibly have stirred up so much dissent in 12 days? Instead, when the Jews found him, he was quietly and reverently going about his religious devotions. Paul declares that following the way, in verse 14, is completely in line with the scriptures and the traditions of the Jews. There's no inconsistency. They're not some crazy cult or sect. Everything they believe is perfectly consistent with God's prior revelation and the testimony borne by the Jews. And that far from subverting Judaism, what Paul believes about Christ is most in agreement with them. It's the obligation of the Jews to show how Paul is a dissident. The burden of proof falls on them, not on Paul. Paul makes it clear that his purposes in coming to Jerusalem have been charitable, in bringing alms, peaceful and in full submission and respect of Roman justice. Paul's conscience is clean. Rather than fearing man, he fears God because he knows that one day he will stand before God to give an account of his life, just as each one of us will, friends. Just as each one of us, at some point, will be called to make an account of our lives. And, and for some of us, it may be sooner than we realise, no matter how old we are. This conflict is a spiritual conflict. It has nothing to do with Rome and its peace, but it has everything to do with the gospel and those who believe or reject it. So what are we going to do? 
This is a call for faith. Do we have faith like Paul? Do we have faith like those who've been our spiritual parents, those who've spoken to us of grace beyond compare, those who've spoken to us of a God who we can know intimately, God who who made us most wonderfully to know him and to be awed by him. We need faith, just like Paul. The final point this morning, faith. You see, Paul's faith in Christ, the completion, the fulfillment of the purpose of the revelation of God throughout time, this faith is sure and immovable for him. The whole of the revelation through the scriptures was all pointing to Jesus. The I am. That's why the Apostle John writes again and again of Jesus saying that he is the I am. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Again and again and again he makes it clear who he was and who he is to us by his spirit even now as you sit in your chairs here in the chapel or at home. Who do you say that he is this morning? This I am at long last had come to his people. Why? To lead them out of the wilderness and into his glorious kingdom by making the way possible through the cross of a crucified Christ. Friends, there was and there is no other way. Don't believe the flattering words of the world. Don't believe that you can recast yourself according to whatever delusions you might seek to entertain. There is only one way. The Jews believed that the way lay in religious devotion and temple rituals. Though the Old Testament, even as we read Psalm 51, did you, did you listen to Psalm 51, our call to worship? It's not through temple sacrifices that we're made righteous. It's by the grace and mercy of God through broken and contrite hearts. King David knew it. And he knew the temple. Do you know it? Or do you entertain other ways of making it through? The Old Testament makes it clear that offerings of animals could never atone for the sins of men, especially where blood has been spilt. And friends, blood is spilt all too often in this world. As we prayed earlier, as we see all around us, there are conflicts, political upheavals, horrific murderous crimes against men, women and children going on all over the place. Stabbings. Lives lost to drug addiction. Never ending struggle for more. Never satisfied. 
Friends, there's something grievously wrong with our world. There's something fundamentally wrong with each and every one of us. And only the eyes of faith can awaken us to this truth. The truth about us and the truth also about Jesus, the sinless Son of God. The one who entered our dirty, broken world and served us tirelessly before enduring the merciless, mocking scorn of his creatures an agonizing death on the cross where he endured the full measure of God's wrath against sin in order that we might live and live in the fullness of the life he has prepared for us in order that we might shine like the stars, giving him glory for all eternity. That was why Paul had returned to Jerusalem to worship God Not because he could only do this at the temple, but in order to bring his arms, the collection for the sustenance of the church at Jerusalem, in order that they might be encouraged in their faith, built up and enabled to continue bringing the countercultural message about Jesus to the Jews. Paul's own people, who who he often talks about so lovingly. Paul desired their salvation. Paul wasn't there condemning them. He was there preaching about the death of Christ and the resurrection hope. Why? In order that they might not be under bondage anymore to flattery and deception. To the false system, religious system that was going on all around. Paul desired their salvation that they should come into a saving knowledge of the loving purposes of God in Christ to save them from their sins and be set free indeed. And friends, we should also care enough about others that we are prepared to risk ridicule, marginalisation and perhaps worse in order that our friends, our family, our neighbours and our co-workers might also be forgiven healed and set free. There's a, an atheist comedian by the name of Penn Gillette. I've mentioned him previously. He's an American uh, comedian and magician, uh, quite a big name. Uh, and he famously said the following. This is what a lot of people are thinking about the church. Okay. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and that you think that it's not really worth telling them this, because it might be socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody not to to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. 
Friends, our eternal destiny, the destiny of your friends, family, co-workers, whoever else is around you, people who you claim to, to love and appreciate, their eternal destiny is at stake. And for how much longer? For how much longer will this world endure? We can't say, right? We need to live, friends, as if Christ is coming back tomorrow. Or even this afternoon. Are you ready? Have you shared the gospel with anyone this week? Have you given the reason for the hope that's found in you? Friends, if we've met Jesus, and if in him, like Paul, we have a sure and certain hope for the resurrection into blessed eternal life, then we must labour on. We must use all the resources at our disposal. The gifts that God has given us to be all things to all people, that we might win some of them that God might open some of their eyes to the eternal praise of his glorious grace. Let's bow our heads in prayer.